in Britain, you've got two organizations who should be doing something about money laundering. One is the Financial Conduct Authority, who are completely inept and asleep and comatose. They are useless. The other is the Economic Crime Department of the National Crime Agency, who are cowards. They are afraid of prosecuting the bankers because the politicians in Parliament have said, hey, we need the invisible earnings of the City of London. Oh, and by the way, when I retire from Parliament, I'm going to try and get a directorship with some bank in the city. The richest man in the world is Vladimir Putin. And this is a guy whose salary is $100,000 a year. He's, he's richer than Elon Musk? Yes, he's probably worth several hundred billion dollars. How can he spend it? He can't. He can buy himself a really nice dacha in, in, uh, in Russia someplace. But could he buy himself the world's largest ocean-going yacht and live in the south of France? No, he couldn't. So he can't do anything. He's got a really nice, expensive watch. Okay. What he's doing with this money is keeping score and paying off people to keep him in power. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. I hope you're all real well. We've managed to pick something to really light up the new year and maybe even the night skies with an absolutely crackerjack guest. He is the most brilliant Jeffrey Robinson, who you just heard a moment ago in a clip from my interview coming right up. Jeffrey Robinson now please get this, is regarded as one of the world's foremost leading experts on international financial crime. He has written numerous books, published major articles and exposés, had a career in television and radio, and he continues to speak out on dirty money and money laundering. Among his best-known books is his 1995 blockbuster, The Laundrymen, a major tome that shows how hundreds of billions of dirty dollars come mainly from the drug trade, then are quote-unquote reinvested throughout the globe by what are regarded as otherwise legitimate business people, lawyers, accountants, and bankers. A truly awful business. Today, money laundering has changed, and Jeffrey Robinson will explain why. Jeffrey Robinson once called himself a New York street kid, a regular guy. He is also a master storyteller, a keynote speaker, and a prolific writer. He even co-authored the autobiography on Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. Jeffrey Robinson is back on our show by popular demand. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. What was it like working with him? At times it was wonderful because he was funny and loose and happy to tell stories. At other times it was difficult because he'd sneak off and have a drink. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. 
Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. As I always like to say, it is grand to have you all back. This is a fantastic guest I have for you, Jeffrey Robinson, who knows more about the dynamics and operations of money laundering than maybe even some of the top law enforcement operatives and intelligence people on the planet. He is the author of The Laundrymen and much, much more. I don't know where to begin with Jeffrey, and I will have to have him back again because he is a treasure trove of great money stories. Our interview covers everything from the huge growth in money laundering and how the bad guys have done business to where the money is washed up. And we took some detours on Bitcoin. And even later in the interview, Jeffrey Robinson brings us some totally larger-than-life stories on his autobiographical project on Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Robinson. Jeffrey, how are you? I'm I'm terrific, and, and it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, John. I, I've looked forward to this. I've looked forward to it as well. I've had you on my show before when we were talking about the potential. I Hopefully, it's going to happen. Sequel to the blockbuster Laundryman. Where's that at? Well, that's a good question. I mean, publishing business is in such disarray because of the... Uh, because of the pandemic, so we'll see. But I mean, it's it's uh, it's in bits and pieces and ready to 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 fly as soon as we can add motors and wings. Anyway, you have your your finger in all kinds of pies, and I want to talk to you about the state of money laundering globally today, here in the U.S., overseas, everywhere. Money is laundered. I mean, let's begin to give people an idea of the vast sums. The the, the data I get is that 2 to 5% of the globe's GDP, that money is laundered. That's up to 2 trillion. I don't even know if that's an accurate number. It could be vastly more, but whatever way you caught it, it's huge. Oh, it absolutely is. Now, when I wrote The Laundryman, which is now 30 years ago, I was much younger then, um, the World Bank and the IMF and people like that were telling me that there was anywhere from 100 to 300 billion circling the globe looking to get clean and dirty money. And the bulk of it then was drug money. Now, drugs have always been the world's largest cash crop. And the UN said not long ago, and get this, that more money is spent on illicit drugs worldwide than on food. I mean, that's a totally shocking statistic. Today, uh, yeah, two to five percent of the world GDP, which could be anywhere from a trillion to a trillion and a half, perhaps up to two trillion. There's no way of knowing, but the bulk of it is no longer uh, illicit drugs. The bulk of it now, the biggest share of it, drugs is still a big part. It's number three, but the biggest share is public uh, and and uh, political and corporate corruption. I mean, imagine that for a minute. Corruption as as a business in the political sphere and in the corporate sphere 
is more evil money-wise than illicit drugs. This is a bizarre world we live in. And that figure of one trillion, one and a half trillion, two trillion represents a mere 10% of the wealth that is hidden offshore, out of the way of government control, out of the way of ta the tax man. This, this, I don't know, 10 trillion, 15 trillion, 20 trillion dollars hidden offshore is a huge political force for evil, not for good, but for evil. So who are these political and corporate entities? Can you name some names or do we guess them? Well, you look at you look look around the world at all those countries that require a local partner to do business. You know, that's bribe money. That's corrupt. Now there are laws in the uh, in the West, in the United States, in Europe preventing that sort of thing, but it goes on. You want to do business, you want to sell your product, you've got to have a local partner. The local partner happens to be the son of the autocratic ruler, and uh, he's got to be paid or you're not going to do business there. That's part of it. Uh, the corporate side is bribery and, and false invoicing and, um, uh, uh, and money laundering and fraud. It's, it's, this is an evil world we live in, and it's not getting any better for one very simple reason that the good guys are playing with one hand behind their back, the bad guys have better lawyers, more guns, and the good guys aren't prosecuting. I mean, if you look at what's going on in the world, every time they find a money laundering bank, the good guys find the bank because that's the easy thing. That's the low-hanging fruit. They don't send the gatekeepers, the bankers, lawyers, accountants, company formation agents. Uh, they don't send them to prison, which would help solve the problem. You know, you've been critical of that recently, even with the uh, HSBC case, which if you wish to talk about. Uh, I mean, I guess the bigger question is, do senior people in these banks turn a blind eye or is it just uh, a lack of awareness or what is it? How, well, it's how certainly do... not a lack of awareness because there is so much literature out there warning that these things are happening. It's turning a blind eye. <clears throat> I mean, if you look at the so-called gatekeepers, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the company formation agents, the brokers, the politicians, you look at these people who may in, in their day job be perfectly legitimate people. They could stop it because the money has to go through them. The reason they don't stop it is because they're the ones earning the money doing it. Now, how do you say to a jurisdiction in the Caribbean, stop with the phony shell companies? And they say, it's actually, it's none of your business. We, we need to employ people. We need to have money coming in. And if somebody wants to buy the Acme Trading Company, it's not our business what they do with it. I mean, I spoke, I, this goes back, way, way, way back. I spoke at a, I did the main, main keynote at a, an RCMP, a Mountie, a Canadian, Royal Canadian Mountie uh, conference in Montreal. And at the end of it, I was taking questions and some guy, this was right after 9-11, some guy from one of the Eastern Caribbean islands stood up and he said, I've got a question for you. You say that we shouldn't uh, sell phony shell companies and phony banks and all that. 9-11 uh, killed our tourist trade. The NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, killed our banana and orange and mango trade. We have no way of earning a living. What are we supposed to do? Our people need to eat. And I said, frankly, I don't have an answer for that. I don't know. Now, if you look at the history of the offshore world, it was created for a multitude of reasons, one of which was tax evasion. The Canadians helped create it because they realized 
we can't afford to keep money in Canada. We're going to get taxed, so we'll put it offshore. The Americans worked out ways of, of cooking the books for banking clients. But it was the British who said, well, we're going to let the Commonwealth Islands come up with all these phony banks and phony shell companies because we have to support them in some way. Otherwise, and they're going to break away from the uh, motherland, as, as it well, were. Well, that's right. As a member of parliament in the UK, I can't say to my constituents, we're going to tax you extra money so that all of your friends can afford to live in the sunshine in um, in St. Kitts and Nevis. No, let them do their thing, and then we don't have to tax at home to do it. And they, and they simply turned a blind eye to it. I mean, the Commonwealth could end it right now by making it all illegal. But then who's going to pay for it? This has gone way out of control. So they have to come up with some solution. There's a big effort now to harmonize corporate tax rates globally between, you know, between nations, because we see how major multinationals will book their profits in a low tax domicile, um, separated from where the money and the revenues originated. And it leads to all kinds of weird accounting gimmicks. Do you consider any of that a form of money laundering? Well, no, it's a form of fraud. Mm. <laughs> now, the, the relationship between the Is two, there any difference? <laughs> yes, yes, there is, because not all fraud is money laundering, but all money laundering has a fraudulent element to it. Mm. Now, if you are, uh, if you are uh, the uh, uh, Acme Trading Company, a legitimate company operating in, pick a country, in the United States, and you are selling your product in Ireland and Europe, your profits are going to be taxed where? You're going to be taxed in the country where you're selling it. So what you do is you sell it to some company offshore, and the offshore company moves it into Ireland and Europe uh, at no profit. So mm -hmm. there's no tax to be paid there, and you own the company in the island. Now, why is that fair? How is that not fraudulent? You know, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, the uh, Enron scandal broke. And it was revealed that Enron, which was, everybody believed, a perfectly legitimate company providing electricity to most of America, that Enron uh, had incorporated in the Cayman Islands 3,000 shell companies, none of which had the name Enron on it. It was all Acme Trading and International Global uh, Finance or whatever it was, but they were all phony companies. Now, who do you blame? Do you blame the Caymans? Caymans say, it's not our problem what you do with it. We're just selling you the right to do it. But we hope you are uh, legal and, and, and maintain uh, proper decorum in the international forum. So they wash their hands of it. Do you blame Enron? Yeah. And that's why some of the Enron guys went to jail. But why is this permitted? This is permitted by the tax laws in the countries, in Ireland and, and the mm. England and France and the United States. They're permitted to do this by the tax laws. Change the laws, and you can stop them from doing it. Well, that's sort of some of the rationale behind harmonizing corporate tax rates. Whether it'll work in reality, we'll have to wait and see. There's been a lot of profits booked in low-taxed Ireland, which is going to have is raising its corporate tax rate up, as we know, and uh, it led to all kinds of weird distortions in the GDP and GNP, nobody knew what the country was worth. I mean, there was just all this phony baloney money swirling all around the continent and in Ireland. Well, if you look at, if you look at something like the EU, you have some well-meaning people, you have some not so well-meaning people, but the well-meaning people say, let's do something about it. So they turn around 
with a minimal budget and they hire some accounting firm to say, tell us what's wrong. The bad guys hire the big accounting firm, the really good guys who know how to get around the less than wonderful guys hired by the EU. You know, this is not a battle of equal. This is, yeah. this is money talks. And when you're dealing with these kinds of things, you have to say to yourself, qui bono? You look at a situation and you say, qui bono, who benefits? And if you've got the best lawyers and the best accountants, and you've got a lot of money that you want to make sure doesn't get taxed, you're going to win because the bad guys, the good guys are, as I say, they're fighting this battle with one hand tied behind their back and the refusal to prosecute criminally. That's the thing that just drives me nuts. Look at recently NatWest. Now, in Britain, you've got two organizations who should be doing something about money laundering. One is the Financial Conduct Authority, who are completely inept and asleep and comatose. They are useless. The other is the Economic Crime Department of the National Crime Agency, who are cowards. They are afraid of prosecuting the bankers because the politicians in Parliament have said, hey, we need the invisible earnings of the City of London. Oh, and by the way, when I retire from Parliament, I'm going to try and get a directorship with some bank in the city. So be careful what you wish for. I don't want you going near the city. So the NCA turns a blind eye. The FCA turns a blind eye. You mentioned HSBC. Uh, the HSBC scandal broke. And the then Chancellor of the Exchequer called the Secretary of the Treasury, Gaitner, and said, do not, please, we beg you, do not prosecute HSBC for the world's largest money laundering scandal. Because so many pension funds are tied up with HSBC. And you, Treasury, have a right to deny HSBC uh, the use of U.S. dollars. That's a big, heavy weapon. They can say to HSBC, you're not allowed to handle dollars. Well, that would bankrupt them. So the British panicked. But what did the FCA do about it? The FCA literally hid under their desk and peed their pants, hoping <laughs> that they would not have to act against the largest bank in Britain and the third largest bank in the world because they are absolutely useless. What did the Treasury do? The Treasury fined them $1.9 billion dollars. And I know the man who actually carried the check to Washington and paid the $1.9 billion fine. And that night, he was honored at a big dinner for great bankers in the world. Now, he was not part of it. He was hired to clean it up. He was a clean guy. Yeah, he was the clean guy. And he was the honest guy. And he was a wonderful man. What happened to the people who turned a blind eye to this money laundering in Mexico? They retired with their pension funds and never went to prison. No one went to prison. Why? Because that's not what we do these days. We don't send these gatekeepers to prison. We find the banks. It's so much easier. And it adds to the treasury. It's a win-win for the governments and it's a win-win for the banks. It's a lose-lose for the rest of the world who want to clean up money laundering and stop all this crap going on. Quickly explain to those who haven't followed it, the HSBC scandal. That was tied in with drug money, right? It was, it was drug money in Mexico and phony accounts in Mexico. It was the Mexican cartels who were laundering zillions through HSBC and phony accounts. And HSBC in Mexico turned a blind eye to it. And London knew about it. Now, they when you say phony it. accounts, were they coming in under the guise of front organizations? So the bank teller or whoever way the money was wired, it didn't yeah, there was cash, cash, it did, but, unreported cash. It was cash yeah. coming across the border, going back and forth. 
And, mm. and HSBC did nothing. Why? Because the Mexican branches were earning a lot of money doing it. Again, qui bono. Yeah. How do you stop it? You stop the people who are earning a lot of money doing it from doing it. That's how you stop it. You put them in jail. You know, I remember when HSBC broke, I remember being on the Today program with John Humphreys. I mean, they woke me up at three o'clock in the morning so I could do it at eight o'clock, you know, from New York. And Humphreys said to me, how do you stop it? I said, John, it's very simple. You take the banker and you put him in an orange jumpsuit in a six by six cell with a guy named Bruno who's got two fang tattoos on the side of his neck and you lock him in that cell for 12 years. And that will send a message to all his friends, you better not do this because they're, they're serious about it. But no one goes to jail. When was the last time the National Crime Agency put a gatekeeper in prison for money laundering? And I can tell you when, 3,000 years before Christ. They've never done it. It's never happened. When was the last time the FCA did anything about money laundering? Same, same problem, 3,000 years before Christ. That's why the city of London is the world's largest cesspool of dirty money because neither the FCA nor the NCA will get off their ass and actually do what's necessary. They fake it. You've had a direct experience uh, about London. You've written about all of these topics. The Risk Takers um, was another bestseller in the UK. Uh, did that get into that whole topic? What I did with the Risk Takers, I had been writing a series of portraits of business people around the world for the magazine Barron's, owned by the Wall Journal. Mm-hmm. And a publisher said, why don't you turn them into a series of portraits of the British businessmen? Now, this was this was the era of Maggie Thatcher opening up the city and bringing the city into the 20th century. So I looked at a lot of business people in Britain, uh, people like Tiny Rowland. And I wrote about the Rue brothers because of the way they had changed the food service business in England. Uh, and then one of the people I wrote about, of course, was Robert Maxwell. And I got to know Maxwell, and oh, he was he was a hoot. He, pretty he, colorful he, he, character, to say the least. He was a piece of work. He really was. Now, when he went missing, mm. I remember being called to do James Nockerty's World at One on the BBC, BBC Radio. And that's how long ago it was, because James was, was doing that before the Today program. And someone said to me, what about Maxwell? I said, well... They will find the body. The sharks won't eat him out of professional courtesy. <laughs> and, of course, I saw people go nuts in the control room saying, you can't say that. It's live. Well, you know, Maxwell was a crook and he was a fraudster. And was he laundering money? Yeah, of course he was. It wasn't called that in those days. But uh, the other risk takers, no, they were doing what they had to do. And, and, and maybe some of them okay. were playing close to the chest. But, no, they weren't the ones. It's it's really the corporate, uh, the corporate corruption and the political corruption that is driving so much of this, and the fact that nobody is going to prison. That's the answer. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you if you slap somebody's wrist, if you fine Nat West, which just Nat West just got fined three hundred and fifty three million pounds or some ridiculous figure for criminal money laundering, they fine the bank for criminal money laundering. Where are the criminals? Well, we don't, we're not going after the criminals. It's the bank. It's the four walls and the roof that committed money laundering. That's nonsense. It's people inside the bank who did it. Now, who pays for it? Not the, not the president of the bank or the chairman of the bank who gets his bonus. It's the shareholders. Yeah, they get hammered. Yeah, it's the innocent shareholders who are paying for the crooks inside the bank. I say you put the, put the bankers in jail and things will change. 
any thoughts about the expansion in the global money supply with the COVID pandemic economy, the stimulus money, the, the huge amounts of money that's pouring into economies through central banks? I know now there's going to be some easing over the coming months. We get that. But just the vast amounts of money going through the banking system. And I don't believe there's a lot of experts know where a lot of that money is ending up. I mean, obviously, in certain assets, stocks, bonds, housing, cryptocurrencies, consumers made some money, billionaires became richer. Does that open up uh, an opportunity for money laundering, that whole dynamic? Is there any connection it there? Certainly opens, it certainly opens up the opportunity to fraud. Mm. And there are stories now about people who applied for these business loans yeah, the pandemic money, who were buying yachts and cars, you know, prosecute them. Yeah, If you don't prosecute them and they get away with it, it simply encourages more. And yes, as soon as you expand money, as soon as the, wherever there is money, there will be fraud. Wherever there is fraud, there will often be laundering to avoid getting caught for the fraud, to make the money disappear. That's what laundering does. It makes the money disappear. It kills the, 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 the money trails so that they can't be followed. But again, Everybody just simply has to ask themselves, qui bono, who's benefiting from this? And then you find those people who are benefiting and you put them in the orange jumpsuits in the cell with the guy who's got the fang tattoos. You send that message to people and this will ease, this will stop. But no one's doing that. Okay, so where does this money ultimately end up? Okay, it's lying in suitcases or in faults in some Caribbean country or in South America or maybe here in the United States. The money gets used up i mean it's invested somewhere in hotel fronts and luxury apartments yachts presumably uh mansions some despot in africa what did he do with the money where, where is it well where, in, where does in it manifest cases, itself in in many cases they can't do anything the richest man in the world is vladimir putin hmm. this is a guy whose salary is a hundred thousand dollars a year he's, he's, he's richer probably, than elon musk yes he's probably worth several hundred billion dollars how can he spend it he can't he can buy himself a really nice dacha in, in, uh, in Russia someplace, but could he buy himself the world's largest ocean-going yacht and live in the south of France? No, he couldn't. So he can't do anything. He's got a really nice expensive watch. Okay. What he's doing with this money is keeping score and paying off people to keep him in power. That's what he does with it. What do the other people do with it? When I wrote The Laundryman, I said that if you went to any European capital or any major city in, the, in North America, and went from the central station and walked one mile in any direction, whether it be the st station in Frankfurt, the Gare du Nord in Paris, uh, Waterloo Station in, in London or King's Cross, and walked one mile around, you would come within elbows distance of a commercial property that was owned by, managed by, or otherwise financed by organized crime. Because that's what they were doing in those days with the money. They were doing what's called double back loans. They were taking the drug money, putting it into banks, and then borrowing the money from the banks through phony shell companies to buy property so they could live off the income. So that when the cops banged on the door and said, John, you're a money launderer. You say, no, I'm not. Well, look at this. Look how you live. Where did this money come from? I own commercial property. Oh, yeah. How did you pay for it? I got loans from banks. That's all. And here, here's the paperwork. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Policeman, I pay my taxes on it. Yes, I earned $50 million or 25 million pounds last year. Here's my tax receipt. I declared every penny of it. Go away. And what can they do? Because they can't find the money 
that financed it because you've obliterated the money trails through proper lo money laundering. That's what they've been doing with it. They've been reinvesting it so that they can live what looks like a legitimate life. So they never catch up with most of these guys and gals? Yeah, they do when they're stupid. You know, when you're Pablo Escobar, who, by the way, was a great businessman. He really was. Or when you're the Orahelia brothers running the Cali cartel. Yeah, they catch up with them because they stay in Colombia. But the really smart ones are the ones you don't know. The really smart ones look like businessmen who are paying their taxes and living well. And way, way, way back, several layers of shell companies and, and borders and jurisdictions back, there's dirty money that's financed the whole thing. Well, just to make it clear, there are very legitimate, honest, conscientious businessmen, politicians, well, well, and politicians, quote unquote. But I do have to ask, do, do some of these um, money launderers, not some, presumably a lot, bribe senior officials in government? Well, of course, that's where, the, that's where the public corruption comes in. I mean, Colombia was a mafiocracy. Russia is a mafiocracy. Colombia, you have presidents of Col various presidents of Colombia taking campaign money from Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. Look at Mexico. Mexico, they try, but Mexico is a thoroughly corrupt country. You had a president of Mexico whose brother actually went down for murder and whose sister-in-law, the brother's wife, went to Switzerland to pull money out of their secret account, which was in a, uh, in a safe deposit box. And the cops in Switzerland knew she was coming. She went and she took money out of the account and pulled something like, I don't know, 200 million, don't quote me, but $300 million out of the, in cash. And they busted her and they said, why would you take so much? Why wouldn't you take a little bit at a time? And she said, that's what I was doing, taking a little bit at a time. Oh my gosh. His brother was to Ireland. He fled to Ireland? Yeah, he fled to Ireland. And I think he's, he's back. I think he's in the United States now teaching someplace. Look at, look at a country called Panama. And I mean, I can't think of a more corrupt place. Panama is not a country. It's a business. The Masek Vanseca scandal, these two company formation agents, two lawyers mm -hmm. who were part of what was called the Panama Papers, that scandal. They were only the fourth largest company formation agency in Panama. There are three bigger ones all tied to the ruling party, all tied to the people who make Panama work. Panama is not a country, it's a business, and it is thoroughly, thoroughly corrupt. The, a former president of Panama is living, I think, under house arrest in Florida. They're trying to extradite him back to Panama. He was the guy who helped Donald Trump set up his, uh, his uh, investments in Panama. I mean, how much of a picture do you have to draw? It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. When you started covering all of this industry money laundering, it was very sophisticated, clearly, but not as advanced in terms of technology as it is today. Now, with the click of a switch, you can move money from one account to another. From but you could do it. You could do it then too. It was it was not as sophisticated because it was based on trying to get cash in those days, street cash from drug trafficking, into the banking system. So you you did what they call smurfing. You hired 100 guys, because there were limits as to how much you could put into the bank, $10,000. So you hired 100 guys to put $9,000 into five banks or 10 banks a day. And that way you had 500 banks, and then you consolidated all that cash. Today, it's phony invoicing. And you're right, it's a click on a computer screen. And it's something called trade-based money laundering. I mean, Remarkable. The, first, the first trade base case, let me tell you about the first trade base case, and you can see how naive people were. 
Some guy in Colombia says, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to find an industrialist who is going to give me the money to pay for the street cash that's sitting in America. And I'm going to take that money. I'm a broker. I'm going to take that money and I'm going to pay the trafficker in Cartago, Colombia to buy his street cash. Now, I'm going to take the street cash and I'm going to buy a product. And we're going to import that product back into Colombia, which this guy can sell and make it look like a legitimate purchase. So the guy says, I'm going to buy a helicopter. Now, he goes to the Bell Helicopter Company and says... I would like to buy a helicopter. What have you got that's blue with leather seats and an eight-track stereo? That's how long ago this was. So the Bell Helicopter Company says, well, here, we've got this one, uh, and the price is, pick a figure, $3 million. So the guy says, okay, and this Bell Helicopter salesman says, uh, will that be a check or credit card? He says, no, I, I will send you the money. Now, I have to remember, the money came in in almost 30 different installments from 25 different sources, including a little old lady in New Jersey who sent a check. He had 25 different payment sources making 30 payments for this helicopter. And Bell Helicopter never blinked. Today, today they know. And today that wouldn't happen. Mm. But the idea was the helicopter was then sent to Columbia. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen! By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council. My guest is Jeffrey Robinson, the best-selling author and expert on global money laundering. And we'll pick it up here in Colombia and later get to Jeffrey's Inside the Beltway Gems on Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. There's a little island north of Colombia called San Andresita which is like a duty-free island. And it's all of the smuggled goods that are being bought with this trade-based money laundering coming into Colombia and then being sent into shopping malls, which are called San Andresitz little shopping malls, mm -hmm. all over Colombia. And they're, yeah, they're a shopping mall where you can buy televisions and computers and what it clothes, designer clothes and tractors and everything that have been smuggled into the country. The San Andresitas, the little ones, the shopping malls, are owned largely by politicians. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? Now, I interviewed some lawyer who was in exile in the United States because she was trying to prosecute this stuff. And I said to her, if I know that these shopping malls filled with illegally uh, obtained goods, goods bought with drug money and smuggled into the country, if I know they're owned by politicians, doesn't everybody in the country? She said, I tried to prosecute that, and I had to flee for my life because they were going to kill me. Oh, my God. But that's how it works. Now, how are you going to end that? Again, qui bono? Who's, who's making the money? The politicians are making the money. How do you end it? How did Switzerland develop its reputation for secret accounts? There was, all, there, was, there was a type of banking secrecy way, way, way back, which manifested itself in World War II when a lot of 
the Jews in Germany needed to get their money out and they put it into Swiss banks. And the Swiss encouraged banking secrecy. Now, in those days, there were two codes. There was the, the class A account, which was your normal ordinary checking account. And if I went to a bank and I said, by the way, I need to put some money into John's account at, at the Swiss bank. Uh, can you just give me the number? They would say, I'm terribly sorry. We can't acknowledge the fact that he has an account here. If you know the number, we can put it into somebody's account. But we can't tell you whose account is what. Well, I want to put it into my wife's account. No, your wife will have to give you the number. It's against the law. Then there was the Class B account, which was the one from James Bond, where you go to the Swiss banker and you say, look, uh, I want, instead of having a bank account where everybody in the bank knows or can find out who it is, even though they're not allowed to tell anybody, I want one that only you and two other people know about. Now, there's a town called Lugano. This is way back. There's a town called Lugano, which is on the border with Italy. And there's a lake. And there's a casino on the Italian side. And every morning, Tony uh, Soprano and his friends would take the boat across the lake with bags of money to deposit into the 109 banks in Lugano. And I know there are 109 banks because I went to Lugano and I opened the phone book. That's how long ago it was. There were still phone books. And I counted. And what I did was I started walking into these banks saying I'd like to open a secret Swiss bank account. And I got thrown out of four or five banks. I mean, I'm in jeans and a Temple University sweatshirt, and I don't look like I've got more than $3 to my name, and probably in those days didn't. And I get thrown out, but little by little I learned the lingo. And in the fifth bank, I said I'm interested in private banking and possibly opening what's called a compte anonyme. So in other words, you're getting a little more sophisticated. Oh, yeah. With each bank, I learned the lingo. So by the fifth bank, I knew how to say what I wanted. And they said, um, just a moment, please. And the woman made a phone call. And she said, go to the elevator and push number two. I said, Thank you very much. So I go to the elevator. I push number two. And a man standing at the elevator to greet me is wearing a $9,000 suit. Believe me, you know it when you see it. <laughs> I mean, you can tell. He's a very sophisticated guy. He tells me his name. He shakes my hand. He says, would you like to speak English, French, German, Italian, or Romanish? Right? Five languages. He takes me into a corner office overlooking the, the lake. And he says, what can I get you? Uh, would you like coffee, tea, perhaps something harder? I said, no, coffee will be fine if you have it. Yes, certainly. Pushes a button. A guy with white gloves comes in. I mean, you, you, you now know you're in the right place, right? And he brings in the espressos with some little pastries and things. And he says, what can I do for you? I said, I'm looking to open a very discreet banking relationship. He says, what kind of numbers are we speaking about? I said, to open it, three to five. Now, I'm talking, I've got five bucks in my pocket. He's thinking I'm talking millions. He said, those are the kind of numbers we can do something about. And he then explains to me in those days, now it's changed now, but he then explains to me the difference between the A and the B account. So what I'm looking for is that B account. And he says, look, he says, the business of James Bond with secret numbered accounts is nonsense. All bank accounts have numbers. They're all numbered accounts. The B account that we offer is only known, the owner of the account is only known to two people in this bank and maybe one other someplace else. He says, what I advise you to do is to have your lawyer in Lugano open the account because then we know the lawyer, but you're protected by client attorney privilege, so the lawyer can't uh, mention you. 
I said, well, that's a very good advice. I appreciate it. By the way, what about depositing cash? Oh, he said, yeah, that, that has become a problem. This is in the 90s. Said, that's become a problem. Um, we have to be very careful with cash because we don't want drug money. I said, how about if I assure you it is not drug money? He said, in that case, we'd be delighted to do business with you. That's extraordinary. Well, that's, you know, qui bono. He gets his bonus yeah. with... You were wearing your Temple teach. That was your alma mater, by the way. You went yeah, to college Yeah, Temple there. in Philadelphia, yeah. Yes. So I'm surprised he didn't ask you for some ID or like you saw, you, you had your heavy New York accent on you. He's looking, at, he's looking at a guy who wants to deposit $3 million in his bank and more money on a regular basis. Mm. That's how he gets his bonus. Listen, I covered a story in Britain about an industrialist named Pepe Dewar in, in Colombia who bought drug money and it was deposited through Barclays Private Bank in Miami. And then the money was moved to Barclays Bank, Private Bank in London. And it was drug money. I exposed the whole thing. I had the number to, I had the numbers of the accounts. And I exposed the whole thing and named the bankers. And they all knew it was drug money. No prosecutions. Drug money was eventually returned to Dewar. And no one was prosecuted for it. Barclays never never suffered anything. It was drug money, clear and clear and, and, and simple. Why was nobody prosecuted? Well, it kind of fell through the, the, uh, the, fell in between the stools. And somebody from the Crown Prosecution Service said to me, going after Barclays would be very dangerous. What's more, he said, and I have this on tape, uh, <coughs> Barclays hires lawyers and someday we may need a job. That's why this <laughs> continues, because no one's going to jail for it. Throughout your career, you've had access and may still well have uh, access to very well-placed sources. That's how you do it. And uh, I read once where you had access to the archives in Russia during the height of the Cold War, and you <laughs> and, and it well, resulted was, in, in some yeah, kind that of that was just a fluke. Tell us I about that. Writing, I, I had heard a story. Listen, I, that's what I do for a living. I tell stories, and You're, I've always been a storyteller. I heard a story way back when about Sputnik. Remember the, the first Russian satellite? And somebody said to me, how long do you think the Sputnik project was? I said, oh, well, I must have planned it for, you know, years. And he says, what would happen if I told you that the Sputnik project was under three months and it was a fluke and it was a one-off fluke? I said, oh, really? What's the story? And he told me what happened, that a scientist named Korolev, who was the Russian missile scientist, went to Khrushchev. And he was designing the ICBM missile that would fly from Russia to blow up New York. And he went to Khrushchev in 1950s. This is what, 50, when was Sputnik? 57. And he said to him, uh, I want to put a satellite up. And Khrushchev said, no, 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 don't fool around. This is the missile that's going to save the Soviet Union and we're going to blow up New York. And he said, no, Premier, I just want to put this thing in the nose cone. Well, nose cone will... Uh, fire off and we'll have a spring and it'll just put the satellite up and the satellite will beep. He says, all right, look, that's fine, but don't screw up the missile. So they launched this thing. And I remember very well the panic in the United States because I was old enough to, to remember it. And I remember just seeing what I thought was in the night sky, Sputnik. It turned out that was the nose cone that you couldn't see Sputnik it was too small, but it was beeping and America panicked. And Khrushchev then called Korolev back into his office and said, that was great. America's panicking. And I've told America, we have hundreds of more Sputniks ready to go. What can you do next? And Korolev said, well, how about if we put a dog in space? That was Laika. He said, good, do it. You have three weeks. And they put a dog in space three weeks later. So I hear this story and I figure, I'm, I've got to go to Moscow 
to get it. Now, this is the era of perestroika and glasnost. It was just happening. Starting to open up. Yeah, just starting to open up. So I, I get a visa and I go to Moscow and I hire somebody to guide me around, uh, somebody who was knew, understood Western journalism. And I found out that there, a report had been written by the KGB and given to Khrushchev about the reaction of Sputnik in the United States. Right away, they sent a report from America back to Khrushchev to say, here's what's happening in the American media and here's what the politicians are saying, and America's in a panic. So I said, well, where would this be? They said, well, it would be at the KGB headquarters. I said, let's go. The guy says, you can't do that. I said, why not? <laughs> They're not going to let you in. So I knock on the door and I get into somebody's office and I said, can I have the report? And he says, well, well, I don't know. Uh, I said, well, glasnost, perestroika. Today, they would sell it. Some guy would say, yeah, I got it in here. Hand me $10,000. But in those days, they looked at me and said, well, no one's ever asked. Sure. And I actually got a copy, a numbered copy, because there are only a few of them, of the report that the KGB handed to Khrushchev. And from that, I went on and met other people who told me that whole story. But, you know, did you, did you make you a copy ask, of that copy, uh, Jeffrey, and have I've it for it. your? I own it. Yeah. You, you have that today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I own it. Yeah. In yeah. safekeeping, I'm sure. And I, and I had to have it translated, but I wasn't going to give it to somebody to translate. I had somebody come to the apartment in London and translate it at my dining room table while I sat there and watched. And they did not take it home. I mean, but, but that's, you know, my son is a, uh, is a sports journalist. He's mm -hmm. with the Wall Street Journal out of Paris, and he's the senior sports correspondent for uh, sports outside of the United States. And he says he's gotten very good at finding sources because he follows what's called the Napoleon uh, method. And Napoleon said it's a two-step method. Number one, show up. Number two, see what happens. And that's what Napoleon did, and that's what he does, and that's what I've always done. It's, it's pretty Hang on the door. The worst they can say is no. Uh, it's a pretty elementary rule of conduct. See, young journalists today don't do that. Young journalists today get on the internet, and they mm. believe the internet is a source. And I yeah. always say to them, it is not a source. It's mm -hmm. a bibliography. It's a reference. Mm. It mm. will lead you to the sources, but you cannot believe what you read on the internet. So therefore, you have to find the source, and then you got to get off your ass and go to see them. Or you do a Zoom. You got to you got to interview the direct sources and get as close to the person who made the decision as is humanly possible. You cannot do it on the internet. I feel there's a more and more of that. They're going on the internet, looking up people's bibliography, yeah. putting that request for comment. I, I agree with you. Um, no, they're taking no, they're taking it from Google, and they're taking the yeah. comments they read on Google, and they're publishing that. And, and yeah, yeah, uh, rather than you know pounding the pavement and walking the streets of you Manhattan or Queens. Your you might That's meet right. some old lady in a in, in, in a diner or something says, you know, between yourself and myself, this is what's really going on here. You That's know? right. Yeah. You have to pound the pavement. I mean, journalism is really about, I'm an old school journalist. I mean, I, mm. I learned it in the old days when there was no Google, when you, you heard a source and you went and you knocked on the door. And if he wouldn't talk to you, you asked his assistant and eventually you find somebody. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have knocked on doors and been told, we can't talk to you. Uh, how do I get in touch with you? I know somebody who can. And you get a phone call from somebody. Let's meet. I mean, I, I, I covered a story. There was a big banking scandal in Spain, huge banking scandal. And I, I covered that for Barron's, in fact, in the Wall Street Journal. This is way back in the, in the, in the days before uh, Michelangelo or something. <laughs> um, and I did the interview with the guy 
who knew the whole story. And he was very vague and he was just not going to cooperate because there were other people in the room. I couldn't do it alone. He insisted on having other people there. And I said, all right, well, thank you very much. And he said, I'll walk you to the elevator. And he's walked me to the elevator and handed me a slip of paper with his phone number on it that said, call me tonight. Show up, see what happens. See what happens, yeah. Has your life ever been in danger? Have you been threatened? <laughs> I'm sure you've been asked that question before, but it's a pretty, uh, it's a question you, you I, I would like to get your reaction to. Okay, first of all, I pissed off the king of Saudi Arabia seriously pissed off the king of Saudi Arabia when I wrote the biography of Sheikh Yamani. Remember the OPEC oil minister? And Zaki Yamani was a wonderful man. And the book was published and it was smuggled. It was outlawed in Saudi Arabia. It was smuggled in and the king got a copy. And somebody, one of the newspapers reported that the king said that Jeffrey Robinson is the only American who can come into Saudi Arabia without a visa, but he'll never get out. And at one point, I, I was given a number I was told if you ever have any feelings of, of unease about this, call this number. And it was some British guys in the protection business. Mm. And I called and I said, I, I just hear clicks on the phone. And they came and they found that one of our phones was tapped. Now, you know, that my wife didn't like that. This, this isn't fun when this happens. And I had kids and you, you, you tend to start looking over your shoulder. I also pissed off a Russian uh, sleazebag once. And, um, he sued a lot of people and wanted to come after me and didn't get very far. But yeah, yeah, I don't do that anymore, by the way. I, I tend to I tend to live in my pajamas and stay home as much as I keep can. The baseball, keep the baseball bat, I guess, beside your bedside. <laughs> well, the baseball bat, yeah. <laughs> Recently, you posted on Mystical. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was your British Telecom article, correct? Yeah, I, I found British Telecom being what happened was i mean that's a great story but my son was about i don't know eight or ten years old maybe he was 14 and he was doing animation on his computer and these were dial-up computers we were living in london at the time hmm. and he downloaded some music and inside the music there was a phantom saw piece of software which would ignite your computer dial up one of the what do they call them, Eight, 900 numbers or 800 numbers, one of the premium rate numbers, run up your bill on British Telecom. Uh, you didn't have any knowledge of it. And it was called dialer fraud. And British Telecom sent out a note saying, uh, we have been made aware of dialer fraud. And please be careful with this, that, and the other thing and report it, if you will. And okay. And one day we get a phone bill for 300 pounds. And I called British Telecom and some guy on, on, on the phone said, yeah, God, we've had nothing but trouble with this. We've had 60,000 complaints. Now, the Proceeds of Crime Act had just come into force in Britain, which said, if you know or suspect criminal money, you can't keep it. You got to, you got to, you can't have it. So I said to British Telecom, I'm not paying the bill. They said, oh, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. And I went looking and found that they were, A, well aware of this fraud. They were not acting properly. And what they said was, we are not, we, the commission we make passing this money along to some, are they 900 numbers or eight? They're in the States, they're, they're 888 numbers or 900 numbers to the premium rate numbers. We have to pass it along because the law says we have to pass it along. I said, no, the law says you have to hold on to it and report it. You can't pass it along. They said, no, you don't understand. You know, it, it's European law. I said, you tell me what criminal code uh, takes second place to European civil law. There is none. Anyway, I, so I published it in the Sunday Times magazine. Um, and the chairman of British Telecom at the time was a man named Ben Verwerin. 
And I got a hold of his fax number. And I sent him a fax saying, you're laundering money. Uh, the fact that you're not keeping your percentage that you're entitled to and giving it to child care means that you're giving dirty money to child care. And basically, you're a schmuck. And I, I mean, I, I laid into the guy and laid into him in the article. And uh, eventually, they sort of stopped it. But in the meantime, British Telecom turned a complete blind eye to money laundering. It was scandalous, absolutely scandalous. And then when I went to the cops, somebody at the Metropolitan Police said, we can't prosecute British Telecom because although phone tapping is illegal, they do it for us. So, you know, here you got British Telecom tapping phones that are illegal for the British police and laundering money for some Italian mob who is doing dialer fraud. Uh, it's all I can do is <laughs> wow, write it was a huge it. reaction it's to your expose. Amazing. Yeah, and the picture the picture you're referring to was me with sunglasses and a baseball bat. Yeah, well it was appropriate. Uh, with the British Telecom Tower in the background and I think the headline was this man wants to take a baseball bat to British Telecom. <laughs> which I suspect is probably criminal threatening of, of the well-being of British Tele I don't know. But the point is, there were sleazebags. They were turning a blind eye to money laundering. And uh, Was there reform know. in the wake of that? Did, did they clean up the rack because of what you did? Well, no, they didn't. But eventually dialing, the dialers stopped and you connected through Wi-Fi. So Okay, that got rid of it anyway. Yeah, but it did cause, it did cause a, lot of, uh, a lot of disquiet at British Telecom. And I got a, I got a lawyer's letter from lawyers who looked like they were independent and this was another thing and i complained to the, the law society about it it looked like they were in the, an independent firm when in fact they were paid lawyers by british telecom not under you know not under a retainer but actual employees of british telecom who had set up this side act to pretend like they were real lawyers not british telecom lawyers and i complained to the law society and i believe that was stopped but that's the kind of sleaze that goes on in, in in the corporate world because Qui bono. That's how they're making money. Uh, Jeffrey, just want to look at your career broadly. You, you know, you have all these bestsellers, The Laundryman, top of the list. You wrote six novels. You even seven. wrote seven. I'm missing seven. one. Oh, okay. Yeah. And yeah. then you co-authored the autobiography of Ron Ronnie Woods of the Rolling Stones. Ronnie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie, Ronnie is a genuinely nice man. I like the guy. I, I've never met him, but I like him, and I have great admiration for how he came out of nice his addiction. Man. He came out of his yeah, addiction he, problem. He had a lot of problems, a lot of addiction problems. He's a genuinely nice man. He's a genuinely nice 15-year-old. Mm. He's a 15-year-old who has lived his entire life in a toy store and a candy store, and no one's ever asked him to pay the bill. Mm. And he just goes through life being a lovely guy, eating all the candy and playing with all the toys. And he did suffer seriously from bad addiction, uh, addictive personality, whether it be cigarettes or drugs or whiskey, whatever, uh, and is still allowed to tell the story, and I'm glad. Uh, the, what was uh, it like working with him? At times it was wonderful because he was funny and loose and happy to tell stories. At other times it was difficult because he'd sneak off and have a drink. And did and you collaborate long distance or in No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. We spent a lot of time face-to-face -face at all mm -hmm. sorts of various hours at his house and mine. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you one story, one very funny story. He said, you got to meet my aunt. And he had an aunt. He was born out. He was raised out at that area that Heathrow expanded to. It's out near the Heathrow Airport. And there's a canal. And his father was a boatman on the canals. And he still had family living out there. And we went out to see his aunt because she made some sort of dish 
This was like his mother or his father's sister. Old woman. She made some sort of a dish that he loved, like pickled onions or something. So he and I drive out there. And while we're there, he calls Jimmy White, the soccer player. And he says, I'm at my aunt's house. Come and she's got pickled eggs or whatever the hell it was. So now Jimmy White arrives. And the three of us are sitting with the aunt eating these pickled eggs or deviled eggs, whatever. And the aunt had a daughter who was Ronnie's cousin. He says, let's go visit my cousin. So we get in the car and we drive half a mile to a housing estate where there are these houses all lined up. And he looks and he says, I don't remember if it's 27 or 28. So he knocks on the door of 27. So Ronnie's standing here, Jimmy White's standing next to him, and I'm behind them. And the door opens at number 27. And it's a woman who looks and sees Ronnie Wood and sees Jimmy White and says, Henry, come here. So Henry shows up, the husband. And he looks, he says, bugger me, it's Ronnie Wood. Bugger me, it's Jimmy White. And he says, nice to see you. And he closes the door because it was number 28. We go to see his cousin at number 28. <laughs> now, can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine this couple trying to explain to their friends, last night, guess who knocked on the door? And they say, no, you've been drinking, haven't you? you they didn't knock on it. Why would they knock on your door? You know, it's, and Ron, Ronnie Wood was with the Stone, Rolling Stones through this period, right? I, that's yeah, oh, it, yes. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, just to be clear. Now, by the way, uh, there's a, a wonderful story. And I, I, I had been friends uh, for years with one of them. Uh, and with one of the Stones? Yeah, we had been neighbors in France. And, and when uh, I lived Can in, you name him? Yeah, the bass player, Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill and I have been friends for 40 years or more, actually more. And he told me a story that when Ronnie got hired, Mick hired him on a salary. He wasn't part of the Stones. He was a salaried player. And they were on one tour, and I forget which tour it was. And Bill and Charlie, Charlie was a good guy. He really was. Charlie, they said to him. Um, oh, Charlie, think, yeah, who passed away, the drummer. Charlie Watts, yeah. Yeah, and God bless him. He was a lovely guy. I don't know any of these people. Yeah, he but was, I knew him. I knew them all, in fact. Yeah. But Charlie said to, they said to Ronnie, you, uh, is it true you're just a, a contract guy? You're, you're not part of the group? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm on a salary. They said, that's not right. You've been here for however many years. You need to be a part of the group. You need a percentage of all of this. So Ronnie said, well, Mick doesn't want it. So okay. So Bill and Charlie went to Mick and said, they were on tour, and they said, by the way, we're not going to Japan. And Mick said, what do you mean? He said, no, no, we're, we're going home. We're not going to Japan, canceling the Japan. He said, you can't do that. We've sold out in Japan. He said, I'm not going. They said, why? He said, because Ronnie's not part of the group. You make Ronnie a full member of the group, we'll go to Japan. So it was Charlie and Bill who got Ronnie that, um, that percentage of the group. Good on them. So it's kind of a partnership. Yeah, yeah. Like, good on them, indeed. Good on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean, generous they're, they're decent. Bill Wyman is a, Bill Wyman is a lovely man. He really is a very decent guy. And Charlie, Charlie just wanted to play drums. Yeah. I mean, he said to me one night, he said, my wife won't let me play drums at home. So I have to go out. I'm the one who's always saying to the group, let's go on tour because I want to play the drums. And when they wouldn't let, when they wouldn't go out, he'd go to Ronnie Scott's in London, the jazz club, and he'd bring his big band and they'd play drums and, and Ronnie Scott's. That's all he wanted to do was play drums. Nice man. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he missed the, the latest tour. They, they, they just completed a tour recently and it's amazing to look at these guys up on stage in their late 70s. Maybe one of them has hit 80 for all I know at this point and still as strong as ever. And to get all these fans show up, millennials and older people, you know, baby boomers and, well, and, and sell out. It's, it's, it, that kind of a phenomenon 
is on one level easy to understand and another it sort of blows your mind well yeah i mean i they were dangerous when they were young there was yeah. an element of danger about them that's not there anymore no. now they're a bunch of old guys doing a tribute to who they used to be yeah which is fine absolutely fine uh i've always been a big beatles fan instead and and watching get back uh that beatles documentary i mean i loved it when you being a fly on the wall with Paul and, and John writing music. And I saw an interview with Paul recently where he said, I've only just realized that I wrote these songs, not with my mate, John, but I wrote all these songs with John Lennon. That's great stuff. Uh, the yeah. Stones, the Stones. They're, are, they're, in some ways, they're part of the establishment now. They're, you yeah. know, they're not rebels. They're not, Well, that's know, right. The danger element is gone. Yeah, they're not on the edge. Yeah, they're not on the edge anymore. But yeah. they're interesting to watch as a as a phenomenon. Oh, sure. they, they and, and quite funny, are. quite quite funny to listen to Mick Jagger. And he doesn't always say too much, but what he it does something amusing, sometimes odd about the whole lot of them. But uh, I say good luck to them, and uh, you know, keep it up. Sure. Um, just you're not a big fan of cryptocurrency because I've seen your posts on Twitter and everywhere, and you you come in for a lot of flack off people. You think it's ready to it's a bubble to ready to burst? I wrote a book. I wrote an ebook with Amazon. Uh, called Bitcoin, The Naked Truth About Bitcoin. And I went at it looking to try and find out exactly what it was. And what I basically found out was it's a scam. It's nonsense. I mean, it's cotton candy. It doesn't, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, Satoshi, Nakamoto Satoshi, who apparently invented Bitcoin and the blockchain, his experiment of using Bitcoin to drive the blockchain has pretty much failed. It's nonsense. It doesn't exist. The, the blockchains that are in existence today are not driven by Bitcoin because Bitcoin is too volatile. It's a terrible currency. It does, it's not even a currency. It doesn't, it doesn't work very well. It's a solution in search of a problem. There are other cryptocurrencies which may or may not be more interesting. But what I've recently come to understand, taking all this flack from the Bitcoin faithful who say, well, you're too old, you don't understand, uh, uh, you know, it's the algorithm and it's, it's science, it's this, that, and the other thing. What I've recently come to understand is it is, it's the emperor's new clothes. Mm. All these clowns pushing Bitcoin are standing there naked saying, you, just because you can't see the great frocks we're wearing doesn't mean that we're not the best dressed in the world. Yeah, it does. So it's, so it's like tulip mania of old and all those other well, problems. You know, there, there's something, there's a difference between price and value. The price of Bitcoin is now $50,000 a coin, something like that. Right. Down from 67, dropped right. in, in, in a week. It dropped 20 some odd percent. Uh, in fact, it dropped 30% in a week. So you can't depend on this stuff. It's not a store of value, not a dependable store of value. Uh, and it's not a currency. There's no circular flow of income with it. It's, uh, it, it's, it's got a value, an intrinsic value of zero. It's not worth anything. The price, yes, yeah, somebody's willing to pay 50,000 for it, but there's no intrinsic value. And that's important because when you look at fiat currency and they always say, well, fiat currency disappears because of inflation. These are people who don't know what they're talking about. Fiat, fiat, the British pound and the dollar and the euro have intrinsic value because you have to pay your taxes with it. And it is backed by a government and all of the institutions of the government and the people of, who, who make up the, uh, the citizenry. There is intrinsic value to that. Uh, this business of, well, it disappears to inflation. Yes, if in 1913 you had $100 and you put it under your bed, the buying power in the year 2022 would be $6. You would have lost $94 to inflation 
mm. buying power. It would still be worth $100, but you would, from 1913, it would, it would go, it would have, you'd, you'd only be able to buy $6 worth of what you could have bought for $100, but it'd still be $100. Point is, no one leaves it under their bed. You invest it, you put it into ETFs against the S&P 500, you put it into a bank, you earn an interest, you buy bonds, you do something. So the buying power of that $100, if you had invested it properly, in very simple, safe ways, would be worth, I don't know, 98 or $99. So the inflation thing is a false argument. It really doesn't hold, hold true. But surely some investors will and have made money on Bitcoin. Those who got no, out. No, they're not aren't. investors. They're not well, investors. Call them they're what gamblers. you are, but they're gamblers. Yeah, they, they gamblers. have made money, right? Oh, they've made money because they bought it fifty thousand and they sold it sixty-seven. Except they haven't. They haven't sold it sixty-seven. And the people who bought it two thousand dollars are greedy. So they're still holding on to it. Either they sold it four thousand, or they're now saying, "Look, I've got you know, I bought it two thousand. I've now got fifty thousand. <coughs> I'll wait till it goes to a hundred thousand." Yeah. No, it's gambling. It's it's and it's a loaded roulette wheel because the largest group of people, the very few people, it's a hundred people who own the biggest share of Bitcoin, represent something ridiculous like point oh oh one percent of all the Bitcoin holders. I mean it's it's you have to you have to Google the theory of greater fools. Yeah. Yeah. People buy this stuff hoping they can sell it for more. So they're looking for greater fools to sell it to. No, it's all of that last out of the exits uh, theory as well. But um, some fools or speculators or gamblers will make money. I mean, sure. never mind. You know, it's sort of like you could you could argue that stocks and equities right now are, you know, it's all a big bubble as well. And not really, because stocks. If you buy shares of Apple, you're buying shares in a company that is generating income that has four walls and a roof that exists, that is real. You can see it. If you buy Bitcoin, what have you got? We did see where we had in 2008, the market collapsed because arguably the equity market was in bubble territory and it lost- well, The housing market, yeah. And well, yeah, and then it affected the equity market too. But, but, uh, is, but, but, but your point is, is, is correct. There is something underlying that. And Bitcoin, in that sense, is a distinctly different well, if you asset had a, if class, you, if that's correct. If you had a house worth, I don't know, pick a figure, $100,000 in 2008, uh, yes, the value might have dropped to 60000 and you might have been underwater in your mortgage, but you were still living in it. And today it's now worth one hundred and sixty thousand. Yeah. yeah, you didn't necessarily. Yeah, some people lost their homes. Okay, I, I understand that there are bubbles. Yeah. So but so you, so a lot of people holding cryptocurrency are saying, Jeffrey, you're going to get really burnt, ruined, destroyed. Get out. Get the hell out of it. You're saying it's very hard to tell them that it's worth nothing. There's no value. Yeah. They, they bought into something that is priced. But has no value. They don't believe it because they're saying, "Well, I bought at thirty thousand, and it's now worth fifty thousand. So I made twenty thousand dollars, and what have you done?" Yep, you know, yeah, it's very hard. But it's tulip mania. It's absolutely tulip mania. We got to go here soon, Jeffrey, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. We're going to do it again because you're not only a great resource and a vast knowledge and a great background to you, but you're a great storyteller. Thank um, you. Two quick ones: the world economy. We're going to see rising interest rates, we're told, in the US anyway. We still have this massive debt overhang in the globe, massive, bigger than 2008. Even though the economy is supposed to be 
wow, it's supposed to be improving in the United States. And we had record consumer spending uh, over the holiday Christmas period. And yet we have inflation run at six, seven percent. All of these things mesh together. Where is where are we headed? Well, we're headed we're headed into the the theory of the old generals who are fighting the last war. That's where we're headed. Uh, if you look at interest rates, when they say, well, well, interest rates, inflation is going to drive up interest rates, and we're going to suddenly find ourselves with 17% interest rates again. No, we're not. No, 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 no. It's not. No, no, no. The, the economy is not the same. It doesn't function the same way. The idea of inflation, a little bit of inflation is actually good because you can move the interest rates up and people will actually get something for their money. If you put $1,000 in a bank or 1,000 pounds in a bank, last year, you were getting nothing for it, absolutely nothing. Now you may get some money back to fight the inflation. That's how you do it. You invest to fight the inflation. So the inflation doesn't matter as much as it did 30 years ago. Interest rates, uh, and when they talk about 6% inflation, it's not true. It's not it. That's in the last few months, prices have gone up. But that's a temporary thing that there's been this supply problem uh, uh, that's uh, now solving itself. Uh, the debt there are economists who will say to you, uh, the debt doesn't matter, that it's only paper and the government can print the paper to, to pay for it, that if there are, if you use that debt money for social programs uh, and create employment, it will solve itself. Now, you have in the United States a Republican Party who says, oh, no, no, we can't allow Biden to increase the debt when they themselves uh, increase the debt massively. Uh, with their tax cuts for the rich that solved nothing but made their rich friends richer. Uh, so, unfortunately, politics gets into this. It would be so much better if everybody could agree to keep politics out of it. Yeah. But the, I don't think the debt problem, and I'm not an economist, but I don't think that the debt problem or the interest rate problem or the inflation problem is what it was 30 or 40 years ago. I think those people who are criticizing it are fighting the last war. They're not looking at the new economy. We have, listen, we have an economy that is based on so many things that didn't exist 30 or 40 yeah. years ago. I got, I got a note this morning from some guy who said, do you realize that all the bank branches in Britain are disappearing? And my answer to him was, so what? Who cares? Seriously, when was the, the last branches. time you were a bank? You have to think my here. Bank yeah, people do it. It's, all, it's, got, it's all moved online, yeah. That's right. My bank doesn't have branches. Yeah. There are none. If I need cash, I can go to a cash machine. But I, who uses cash anymore? Yeah, yeah, good point. Money laundering, is it going to keep getting worse? Is it's it, going to keep getting worse. There's because, going to be more abuses. Any, anything well, no, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse because the authorities are not prosecuting it. It's yeah. that simple. Throw the guy in an orange jumpsuit with Bruno and his fang tattoos, and you will send the right message. Find the banks, and the banks say, well, it's just the cost of doing business. Well, on that note, Jeffrey Robinson, thank you for being on my show. You before have something- I go away, yeah, before I go away, two things. One, uh, if anybody's interested in continuing the conversation, if they would get on LinkedIn and do a, a search on LinkedIn for Jeffrey Robinson and laundrymen, one word, plural, and send an invite to connect. I would be delighted. Don't just follow. Send an invite to collect. I will answer and we'll connect. And because I'm always interested in hearing what people have to say. So I'm a yeah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's great. The other thing is, um, you know, I do a lot of speaking. And because of the pandemic, a lot of it's been on Zoom. And I've recently booked, uh, there's a group called the World Game Protection Association, and they do a conference. It's they're, they're people in the gambling industry who are interested in protecting 
their business is from money laundering and fraud and, and criminal activity. And they're great. They're a wonderful organization uh, of people who are really dedicated to try and do something about these problems in the gaming industry. So they're having their world conference in Las Vegas on the 16th and 17th of February, 2022. And they have booked me as the opening keynote speaker on a Vegas show stage. Now you have to understand, I'm a guy who has spoken to big audiences, small audiences. I'm very comfortable on a stage, but this is a Vegas show stage. This is something very special for me because when I was 15, I wanted to be a saloon comic. And I dreamt someday of playing Vegas. So now I'm going to be playing at the Tropicana on the morning of the 16th of February, 2022, at this conference. So instead of doing, instead of writing or doing my usual money laundering or fraud speech, I've actually written a Vegas show. I've written, I mean, I was an old comedy writer, written a show for myself, a one-man show, which I'm going to do on a Vegas stage on the 16th of February at the World Game Protection uh, Conference. They couldn't book the the performing seals to come with me because they're non-union. <laughs> and my wife said, no chorus girls. So it's just gonna be me, a microphone and a stool for one hour uh, talking about money laundering, but in a very unique way, money laundering and fraud. But I'm just so thrilled to be doing this. It's exciting. It's good to see you out there doing all these speaking tours. And you're no stranger to TV and radio, so writing that script is second nature, no doubt. Jeffrey Robinson, we'll get together again very soon. Happy New Year, and thank you for coming on my show. John, it's a great pleasure. Anytime, and and, a happy New Year, a healthy one, and stay safe. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.